I always had a very weird relationship with eternity and the idea of heaven and hell. Uh, just because of the way it was taught when I was growing up. Actually, the perspective and perception I had about heaven was, you know, chubby babies in wings playing harps. And I was like, I don't want to go there. That actually sounds more like hell to me. Happy Tuesday and welcome to season two of Not Boring Founders presented by FTX. You'll notice that that was a new kind of introduction for the Not Boring Founders podcast, a little teaser a la Acquired. And it's the first, hopefully, of many new things that you'll notice around here in, in season two. The point of season two is going to be the same, to talk to founders in the Not Boring portfolio and the greater Not Boring universe about the companies that they're building, how they got there, their backgrounds, their interests, the people that they are, the challenges that they've had, to just kind of turn the microphone on on the conversations that I get to have with founders every day. The differences with season two are that, one, now we have our new presenting sponsor, FTX, which means that we have resources to invest in this show. So thank you, FTX. And then two, we want to structure it a little bit more. Season one was fast and loose. We didn't really put much effort into promoting it. I would tweet about it occasionally, and that was really it. We didn't have much structure either. I'd, I'd record a conversation, and then when, whenever I was able to get around to editing it, we would release the conversation. Now, for season two of Not Boring Founders, we're going to try to release episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Obviously, that can change sometimes. There are no hard and fast rules here. People will be, want to announce things on certain days, and, and we will do our best to accommodate that. But you can hopefully expect to see Not Boring Founders conversations in your podcast feed on Tuesdays and Fridays. The other thing that we're going to try to do is evolve the interview style a little bit. Last season was really just turn on the mic and have a conversation. This time, I want to get deeper into who the founders are, deeper into tactics and tips and tricks that they have, deeper into the future that they want to build. There's obviously a lot of conversations out there with founders on podcasts. And so I want this to be a little bit different while retaining some of the things that make those other podcasts valuable. I would not say that I'm even close to good at this yet, and nothing is set in stone. So if you have feedback, please give it to me. If you like it already, please subscribe, rate it, do all the things that you're supposed to do to help this podcast grow. I'm going to start putting some more effort into this thing, and your feedback is key. For the first episode of season two, we have Vance Roosh, the CEO and co-founder of Overflow. Overflow is a not boring portfolio company that helps nonprofits and churches accept donations of publicly traded stock and even crypto and lets companies set up plans for their employees to give company stock. That has all sorts of tax advantages, which Vance will dig into. We also get a little bit weirder. As you heard in the beginning, we talk about eternity. I want to get to know the people behind the companies as well, and I want you to get that chance too. So I'm excited for today's conversation with Vance. I chose this one to start season two because I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Before we get there, a word from our brand new presenting sponsor of every episode of season two of Not Boring Founders, FTX. If you've followed crypto over the past couple of years, you know about FTX. Founded in 2019, this year, FTX International raised at a $32 billion valuation. FTX US just raised $400 million at an $8 billion valuation of its own. And you've certainly heard about FTX's founder and CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried. 
SPF is a legend in crypto, the richest 29-year-old in the world, and in a move that Vance would certainly appreciate, he plans to give most of that money away. SBF was a key figure in the piece that I wrote on Solana, Solana Summer. His decision to build FTX's decentralized exchange, Serum, on top of Solana was a huge moment for the blockchain. The company built its reputation on offering the best derivative products in the world, but it's quickly grown to be a top three exchange in the world by volume and by users. FTX US is rapidly growing into one of the largest US exchanges. If you haven't traded with FTX, now you can with the FTX app. The FTX app, which was born out of the company's acquisition of Blockfolio, is the most complete crypto app that allows users to buy crypto and NFTs with no fees, use a crypto debit card, track their entire crypto portfolio, and get important news updates. It's an easy place to buy crypto like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, Dogecoin if you must, with zero fees in a matter of minutes. The FTX app is cheaper than other cryptocurrency exchanges. There's no fixed minimum fee on transactions, no ACH transaction fees, no withdrawal fees, and recurring buys directly from your bank account for dollar cost averaging strategies. Sometimes, like the market that we're in right now, it's better to just set your strategy and forget it. But instead of listening to me talk about it, just go try it for yourself. Go to your app store of choice, download the FTX app. When you sign up, enter my code, not boring, all one word. And then when you trade $10 worth of crypto, you get a free coin. Plus, it's a great way to say thank you to FTX for sponsoring season two of Not Boring Founders. Speaking of which, let's get to our conversation with Not Boring founder, Vance Roosh. Vance, thanks so much for coming on. I think your background and how you got here is one of the most interesting of any founders that I know. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you ended up founding Overflow? Yeah, thanks so much, Packy. It's so good to be here. Yeah, I, I, I do have kind of a unique background. So um, that something that's not that unique. I mean, I, I come from a background of technology. I started my career at Google. And then from there, got a little bo bored and went to a growth stage startup called Adara. And I led product there. That was amazing. Google was cool. But going from 2 million in revenue to over 100 million in revenue in just a few years. I was like, this is where it's at. Startups, high growth, specifically startups are, are where it's at. So I kind of fell in love with the startup space and technology space because of those early experiences in my career. But simultaneous to that, maybe what makes me a little bit more unique is I co-founded a church with my wife and an Australian couple in Palo Alto. So a Christian church, a locally based community. We started with seven people in a living room. And now we have over 4,000 members across 10 physical locations around the world. And we just bought our first venue, our first building. It was a $32 million building right across the street from Google. And so that's been that's a wild awesome. experience. This is maybe the obvious question here, but like, what are the similarities and differences starting a church and starting a company? Like, did you assess the market and there wasn't a church that kind of fit? And so you saw there was a need or like, how do you think through that piece? And then how do you think through growing it? Yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? I think if I were to pretend like I was smart, I would say, oh yeah, you know, we totally saw a gap in the market and we found early product market fit for the church and things like that, which I actually think is kind of what happened, but we weren't thinking like that at all. Honestly, where it came from is my wife and I specifically were looking for a church and we literally visited over 20 churches in the Bay Area and couldn't find one that we thought was relevant to us or that can really serve our needs as a, a young couple um, that were 
in tech. Uh, and my wife was teaching at the time. We were really looking to to find a place where we can grow spiritually and we couldn't find one, right? And so just out of the fact that we couldn't find one and then meeting this other couple who had a vision for a community that we really felt like we could subscribe to, you know, on a whim, kind of actually based on naivety, we said, oh, if we can't find a church, maybe we should just start our own, <laughs> right? And so, um, you know, looking back at it, I do think that we did hit a chord with a specific type of people in the Bay Area. 95% of the people in the Bay Area are unchurched or don't go to church or subscribe to something like a church community. And I think that's not because people are not seeking spirituality or faith. I think it's because of the perception of what church has been in the past. And so we work really, really hard to overcome a lot of those uh, perceptions with providing a fresh take on what a community of faith could look like. And I think that's really kind of struck a chord with people. The similarities with a startup, I think there's a lot. I, I honestly think that building a church is one of the hardest things that you can do. At least in my startup, I can motivate people with money, right? And, you know, with the allure of stock options and things like that. In the earliest days of the church, you know, we had no staff. We had to motivate volunteers to do work on a Sunday on their day off. And we couldn't use the lever of money, right? And so you have to be like actually a really good leader. <laughs> I know you have, I mean, I guess the same kind of infinite upside promise that you would have in a startup, but you also have the lever of this infinite downside threat that you don't necessarily have with a I grew up Catholic. So at least that's how the Catholic church handles it is that you have this threat of infinite downside if you, if you mess up. So at least you have that going for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I've seen a lot of, uh, you know, unfortunate communities that really use guilt and manipulation as a way to motivate. And so we tried not to do that, but I agree. I, I do think that there is this cool element of eternity which is very uh, nuanced and, you know, for some people can be very motivating in terms of, okay, what, how do I think about this? How do I think Wait, about eternity? I'm, I'm going to take you totally off, off script here because this is... Yeah. Let's go. Yeah, let's go. But <laughs> this was growing up. Eternity and infinity were, along with getting kidnapped, which I think was like a very normal little kid fear, eternity and infinity were like just my biggest fears that like, great. So I die and then like just forever like that then it stops when ten thousand it's like how you know how, how do you think about that and how, how do people talk about it uh in the church in a way that's like you know both you know scientifically rational but also not scare I, I don't know it's it's always blown my mind it it, it will blow your mind um i i think about it sometimes and it, it still messes me up i would say this okay i grew up in the church, uh, but not with a relationship with God. I, I grew up more as a social experience because my parents forced me to go, like probably many of our peers. I always had a very weird relationship with eternity and the idea of heaven and hell uh, just because of the way it was taught when I was growing up. Actually, the perspective and perception I had about heaven was, you know, chubby babies, in wings playing harps. And I was like, I don't want to go there. That actually sounds more like hell to me. <laughs> and so as I've matured and I, as I've actually read scripture and try to understand this idea of heaven and hell, this is the best explanation that I could come with that actually gives me a lot more peace. Heaven is simply just eternal relationship with a God that loves you. Hell is eternal separation 
from a God that would love to get to know you, right? And so when I think about it in those terms and don't try to wrap my head around something that is infinite, that as a finite human being, I can't even do even if I tried, right? But if I actually put it in terms of a relationship, like the similar relationship I have with my wife or the similar relationship I have with my kids, right? And understand that part of the premise is a relationship based on love and wanting to get to know each other. And really heaven is just a representation of somebody that wants to get to know you for a really long time. And the representation of hell is just disconnecting yourself from that because you don't want any part of that. It, it really helps me contextualize maybe what the theme of the Bible is trying to communicate. It all, it all fits together. I, I was just reading and wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, about Carlo Rovelli's books and, and the order of time. And I think this is kind of where he ends up too, which is like, you know, according to quantum physics, there is no such thing as time, but it's all this kind of web of relationships. And that does seem, I don't know if that seems scarier or less scary, but the way that does <laughs> seem less scary. That said, we are totally off script. So returning to the business of the podcast, how did you end up founding, founding Overflow and why? And again, maybe now because it was a company, identified a gap in the market. Like, tell me about that founding experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So alongside just continuing my career in tech, the, the church was growing over the past decade, like I said, from seven to 4,000 members. Of those 4,000 members, there are 1,000 active recurring donors on a monthly basis. And so we have incredibly generous community. We've raised tens of millions of dollars for causes that we care about as a church, as well as partnering with local nonprofits. And so in 2019, it was really interesting because there was about a dozen people that are members in our church, they know me as treasurer on the board of a church. A church runs very similar to any, you know, 501c3 nonprofit. So they would approach me 2019 saying, hey, Vance, how do I donate some of my Facebook, Google, Apple stock, Amazon stock to Vive? I love what we're doing, right? At the time, just a couple of years ago, I actually didn't know how to receive stock donations, but I knew stocks were worth some, some good value. And so I went to Fidelity, opened up a brokerage account. By the way, that was painful. And then I gave the information to these members that inquired about it. And then I didn't see anything come through. And that's when I really got curious, like, hey, people have an intent to actually give these non-cash assets, but even if I've given them instruction, they're not actually taking action on it. So I asked one of my buddies, I said, hey, you mentioned that you're going to give some of your Facebook stock. He was pretty high at Facebook at the time. Uh, but I haven't seen it come through. Already, that's an awkward conversation, right? For the treasurer on the board of an organization to like hassle a donor, right? <laughs> like, hey, you said you're going to give. I haven't seen it come through. But I really wanted to get to the bottom of it. And he said something that really gave me the epiphany moment. He said, hey, Vance, I'm going to do it. It's just that the information you gave me, I gave to my Charles Schwab broker. And they told me to download this form, fill it out physically, and then fax it in. And that was the epiphany moment. If you tell a, a millennial specifically to fax in anything, it's definitely not going to happen. So why can't we just actually automate this? Why can't we create an online-based solution that allows people to donate stock? If I can just remove a little bit of friction, I bet the hypothesis was I could unlock some incredible generosity. And so we did that. I emailed 1,000 active recurring donors November 2019. And it was amazing. Uh, 32 people responded to my email. Uh, the email said, hey, if you ever thought about donating stock, by the way, it's the most tax efficient way to give. You can do ask, so hey, now. Could, we, could yeah. you like just go into for a second why yeah. people would want to give stock as opposed to just selling their stock, giving cash or kind of any other way of doing it? Exactly. So especially your audience, whether they're in stock or crypto, 
right, Packy, um, would know this, that you are going to hopefully have a lot of capital gains <laughs> over we time. Until like a couple of weeks ago, but yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Behold, okay. You only lose money if you sell. Uh, and so, you know, um, let's, let's transport back to six months ago. You're sitting on all this capital gains. If you realize those gains, right, you're going to be hit, especially in California, where I live with incredible capital gains tax. So actually, if you give from your gains, those capital gains tax are completely protected because when a 501c3 tax exempt organization liquidates it, then they get the full value because they are not subject to any of those capital gains tax. On the flip side for the donor, it's really cool because if you've held it for more than a year, you actually get to take the fair market value of that position as a charitable tax deduction. And so it's a win-win situation. It works for crypto as well as stock and we support both. So just to be clear, you know, like say at the end of the year, people wanted to give stock or crypto prices were still high. They donate when prices are high is the fair market value at the time of donation. So I would have been able to get that big write off and then miss everything kind of crashing. I mean, obviously it goes both ways, but a hundred percent. Yeah. You nailed it. Yeah. So you would have been able to lock in that deduction at the fair market value, even if, you know, the market kind of like it did <laughs> the beginning of this year um, goes down, which is also like an incredible situation. Obviously you can't predict those things, but this is why, you know, people like Elon Musk, Jack Dorsey, they're not only philanthropic, but they're smart, <laughs> right? And so they exclusively donate stock because it's the most tax efficient way to give. We want to democratize this type of giving because investing has become democratized as everybody in your audience knows. So I interrupted you on on the story. So we'll finish that yeah. up and then I want to go into more specifics about how people can actually do it. But absolutely, absolutely. I sent the email to a thousand active recurring donors. 32 people responded and we raised $1.1 million in three days. And so that was November, 2019. I had a sample set of one, but I'm in tech. I'm entrepreneurial. I said, hey, if it worked for us, I bet you other churches, nonprofits, universities, even organizations, we actually have a product for corporations now. I bet this would be a service that could really serve a lot of people and unlock generosity. And since then, it has. We serve over 200 organizations now. We're venture-backed, Craft uh, Ventures, Uncourt Capital, uh, Packy, <laughs> And a lot of people in the tech space have really come behind this idea of unlocking generosity through non-cash assets, which is going to be the new wave of how people want to give. So you mentioned that you have the corporate program, you have the nonprofit program directly. How do those two different products work? And like, if you're listening out there and you want to do this right now and you're like, I have all these gains somehow still after this crash, I want to give them like, what's the best way for people to do this, to get their organization to do it or directly? Yeah, that that's the best is to get your organization to be connected with our team. It's really easy. We have a clear book demo link on overflow.co, overflow.co, or just my email as well, vance at overflow.co. And I'll make sure my team is available to whatever organization, nonprofit, university, uh, local community, like a church that you already give to and want to actually unlock this channel because it'll allow you to be more generous in the future. Please connect them with us. We also have a corporate product though, to your point, Packy. This same technology that we've created that allows donors to connect directly to their brokerage account 
direct uh, connect directly to their crypto wallet, we actually offer to companies like Twilio, right? And so Twilio actually uses our technology and they provide it to their employees as a way for their employees to give to their favorite nonprofit organizations. So we've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars alongside Twilio employees and make it really easy for them to give directly from their portfolio. Obviously, there's a lot of different reasons why it's advantageous for employees to give in a corporate context because there's things like corporate gift matching that they can take advantage of and partner with their company on. And it's like a source of pride, right? They can give things like their stock that they're compensated with. They're working so hard day in and day out to increase the value of that stock. Why not give some of those gains to the organizations that you know and love and already support and it being a tax efficient way to do so. And how does that work? Are you working with Twilio to pick the charities that people can support? Are they able to just via Twilio support whichever charity they choose? How, how does all of that work? Yeah, both. And so we work with companies, HR departments and social impact departments. And yes, we do work with these teams to curate a list because many companies actually have nonprofits they already partner with that they want to make available for their employees to, you know, support together. But we have a Kickstarter-like environment, a GoFundMe-like environment that is installed within the company. We do basically an integration with things like Okta, where it's really easy to do single sign-on and then create a campaign or launch an organization uh, within the company so employees can do peer-to-peer -peer fundraising uh, for a cause that they really care about. So we can do both. So I've let you do the the pitch now because I believe in it very strongly, but I want to dig in on hard stuff too. Cause like one of the things that I think as an investor shocked me, like I, I worked at a company called breather before, obviously like that was a really hard one. And yeah. it was like most likely to not work. This just seems like such a no brainer, like kind of every conversation that you'd have, like people, either the nonprofit or the company would want to do it. What have been like the, the hard parts and like not a glossy answer because you're, you're on Upworking Founders now. So not a glossy answer, but like what have been the, the hardest parts of the things that like surprised you so far? The biggest difficulty on the nonprofit space is just the bureaucracy, right? And so I'll give you the most non-glossy answer possible. <laughs> the reality is a lot of the nonprofits we talk to, there is a very rigorous process to adopt new technology. I don't know if that's the right answer or wrong answer, but it's definitely causing a lot of friction and it's definitely causing things to go really, really slow for certain organizations. So things like the CEO and founder of the nonprofit needing to make this big board presentation for a pretty modest subscription fee that we charge uh, seems to be much more slow moving than other fast growing technology companies that are making decisions on you know, SaaS software that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars, even millions of dollars, much quicker, right? And so I do think that is a challenge that we're going to have to overcome in the nonprofit space where we figure out ways to deploy technology quicker or else the nonprofit space is going to continue to be left behind. What are the right? rules or incentives that, that make that happen? Is it that donors want to see those things in place? Is it like law that 501c3s have to have those things in place? Like, why does that happen? It seems like anything that's an impediment to donations should just go. 
Yeah, I honestly think it is a unreasonable perspective and perception that people have about nonprofits, right? And so generally, I think the unhealthy culture that the philanthropic space has is this idea where we hold nonprofits to a standard that we don't hold any other sector to. So for example, people get bent out of shape if a CEO of a nonprofit gets paid well at all, <laughs> right? And so there is this microscope, this magnifying glass on this space, which I think makes leaders of these organizations very skittish on investing and being aggressive about their growth. I actually think that we need to overcome this culture and flip it way on the other side. For example, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. Everybody knows this. San Francisco has a massive homeless problem, right? Uh, and if we found a super ambitious founder that was so dedicated to solving this problem, I bet you there would be VC-like people that would totally fund this person, <laughs> right? Because it's a problem that like a lot of VCs that actually live in San Francisco face on a day-to-day -day basis. And obviously the government hasn't been able to solve it. And obviously corporations haven't been able to solve it. So what's the thing that stands in the gap? Philanthropy and nonprofits. But in, instead of being so stringent on what a founder of a nonprofit can make, why don't we just pay them really, really well if they actually have a solution that can work? I bet you we'd probably solve problems a lot quicker. It blows my mind too, because like I, I can maybe understand it kind of like old money and foundations, like, like there's this whole chain of people who have a bunch of different processes and have to hold each party accountable. It's interesting because on the other side, sometimes you're like, yeah, like I, I think it is crazy that they spend X percent on OpEx when they could be going directly to the thing. So it's, it's like a, a system and it's not, there's no kind of easy answer. That makes a ton of sense now though, that there are so many people who've made their money intact, which I would imagine most of the people kind of donated through overflow, but it feels like those people would be donors who'd be happy to invest in something that cared more about top line than bottom line, which is really how, how Silicon Valley works. Exactly, exactly. The space that we're in, right, Packy, and, and the friends that we have, not in a philanthropic sense, but through deploying capital in an intentional way, we've been able to solve a lot of problems and serve a lot of people, right? Why, why not take a similar mentality to the philanthropic space? It actually makes no sense that we wouldn't do it, right? Other than this false perception that, oh, if we incentivize people too much, or if we pay too much, then they're just going to have the wrong motivations. I mean, the current thing that we're doing is not working because homelessness is not solved in San Francisco, <laughs> right? So why don't we try something new? And there's a structure too, where it's like, you know, like obviously you don't want something to get to the level of like the NCAA. Like that is, I think, a, a yeah. you know, nonprofit that you wouldn't want to, to emulate. But if you treat it like a startup and they keep having to kind of go out and pitch for big chunks of money and they, they do it based on kind of hitting increasingly ambitious goals, like that does seem to make sense. Are there organizations out there that you think are doing really well or is the whole system so broken that like no one can really do this? The whole system needs a lot of work. Uh, I wouldn't say it's irredeemable. I think, you know, Overflow is starting to provide a voice in this sector, which I'm really excited about. But there are a few organizations that are also leading the way. There's one particular one called New Story. Their mission is actually to end global homelessness. And the way that they're doing it is by 3D printing homes. It's incredible. New Story Charity 
org. And they're an overflow customer. And Brett Hagler, the founder and CEO, is a good friend of mine. But essentially, they're taking an innovative approach to solving global homelessness through innovative technology like 3D printing and totally catalyzed this cohort of investors and tech people because of the innovative approach that's actually working. They're building home neighborhoods in Latin America, right? And people that are unhoused now have beautiful homes. The way in which they're solving the problem is not just like, oh, we put a roof over people's head. Like these are homes that people actually desire to live in. They're, they're gorgeous, right? And so I do think that flips the script and it allows people to just be a lot more generous and actually pay a proper executive team to execute on this really ambitious mission and vision very similar to how we fund startups and they're very successful. And so I think that is going to be the model of the future. I guess you have to kind of be Switzerland as a platform. And so you can't have a list of like, here are the, the nonprofits that are actually doing it right or else you'll offend everybody else. But yep. it would be nice to know just like a list of these different sites that I can go to where, you know, they're, they're Vance approved, not overflow approved, Vance approved nonprofits. Focusing on that kind of ambition. I, I love that. Um, that's a that's a good idea, actually, Packy. Just to pull on that thread, just quickly, I do think I've talked to Eric Tornberg about this. There needs to be an angel list for philanthropy. I mean, like you know, being an angel investor a decade ago, maybe a little bit more, wasn't cool at all, right? Nobody like used that as like a low key flex, right? Now, it's how you get into parties, and so people actually, even though they probably are losing money by angel investing still do it because it's a form and an extension of their identity. But I would actually argue what you give to more than what you invest in is more congruent with your identity. And so why can't, just like AngelList has done with angel investing, why can't we make giving cool? And so that's part of kind of, you know, our mission and vision as well. But yeah, stay tuned. We're, we're, we're working on stuff like that. But to your point, I do think there needs to be those type of lists and curated spaces. I guess there's like the personal connection with donating directly to a charity, but I would also probably say, you know, Vance or Vance who doesn't have to run a company and can focus on this full time, who knows the space a lot better than I do. Like, here's my stock, go and, and uh, go and donate this on my behalf and make sure that it ends up somewhere good. That seems like it makes just all the sense in the world. And to your earlier point, you should get management fees on, like you should be able to make a living deploying capital into good causes for people. Is there anything on the... On the crypto side here, I think there's something interesting about NFTs. I think part of it is just that people want to have that little thing that says, like, I did this. I don't know. What are what are the crypto ways that you've seen that, that you think are interesting? Oh, NFTs are going to be huge, right? We did a project with needhelp.online, a suicide uh, crisis line. They did this amazing NFT drop, a thousand real stories. And actually, they used NFTs as a form of fundraising and donations. And so people would buy these stories essentially through ETH and, you know, have this incredible NFT in their wallet, reminding them of the impact that they now get to be a part of by supporting this incredible suicide crisis helpline. When you think about college students getting mobilized, when you think about young adults getting mobilized, there is really no better way than NFT communities in the time and space that we live in right now. And so I do believe that NFTs, crypto at large, you know, um, there's a lot of organizations really pioneering this idea that crypto is good. I, I believe that. And I believe it's gonna be a powerful force and a catalyst for actually, you know, putting at the forefront some of these causes that we really need to care about. 
Rain is doing it now too. They're, they're selling NFTs to yeah. raise money. We invested Constitution Bell and then it lost and the tokens became, you know, like technically worthless and they got memed into existence. I would love to see somehow that happen with donations where like somehow you donated to the right thing that, that somehow you got rich for doing that. Like obviously not the motivation at all, but like just that little 0.001% chance that, that you can get this wild outcome from doing something good, I think is another fascinating thing to play with. And like, you couldn't do it through a market like, or anything in the docs or any market for us, but like maybe the world just comes together and is like, you know what, if we raise like a hundred million dollars to fight cancer, we're going to meme this thing into, into the stratosphere. Love that. Dude, Packy, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I think it's these innovative creative ideas where we take the perception of being judged and, and like this farce around philanthropy that shouldn't exist. We just make it the coolest thing ever, right? We just make it the funnest thing ever, just like crypto is for a lot of people. And I do think that that's going to translate. I mean, um, Mr. Beast, right? I mean, he has a whole channel for philanthropy, essentially, <laughs> but, but he's doing it in an engaging way that really resonates with people. And I think we need more people like that um, to make giving cool. Amen. Where's the best place for people to find you and for people to find Overflow and to start kind of giving or getting their organization giving? Yeah, absolutely. Um, active on all the major social media channels, Vance Rausch, uh, R-O-U-S-H, uh, V-A-N-C-E is my first name. Like I said earlier, overflow.co. Um, our team is ready uh, to serve any of the organizations that you and you care about. Unlock this new way to give. So we would love to connect with anybody there. My personal email, Vance at overflow.co. Vance, so much fun. Thanks for coming on and looking forward to, uh, to giving soon. Hey, thanks so much, Packy. Appreciate you.